Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is December 18th, 2015, and this is episode 1697 of the Survival Podcast, and it's Friday, 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 and it's a big Friday. It is not the last show of the year. This is the last Friday show of the year. That means it's the last expert council show of the year. Next week there'll be a show on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. And uh, then we will shut down for Christmas vacation all the way through New Year's. And I'll be back, I guess it's January the 4th this year. Just the way the weekend's worked out. I get a lot of days off. Um, I'll be telling you guys about some things I'll be doing in that time next week. You'll have to wait to hear about them. There may be some opportunities to come out and hang out with me at my place during that week. Not a formal get-together like we're doing Sunday for tree planting. More like come out and help me with a construction project. Just show up and hang out for a day uh, over a given period of days. So check into that next week. With that knocked out, though, let's uh, remind you guys what today's show is all about. Expert counsel questions. These are your questions for the expert counsel. Remember, I split the expert counsel sort of in half. It's hard to split um, the number 13 in half, and that's how many expert counsel members we have because it's not an even number. Uh, so I have room to add somebody if you'd like to throw your hat in the ring to be considered for that going into next year. We need something that's different than everything we have and broad enough that there could be, you know, 24 questions a year and it doesn't get stale and old because I've had people that offered, and I think their expertise were there, but the subject's too narrow, too narrow for a, to, to gather enough questions from the audience over a year. Uh, so if you have broad knowledge in an area that we're kind of weak on or you have a totally different perspective on uh, for preparedness and self-sufficiency and self-reliance, get in touch with me. We'll consider you. I'm not guaranteeing we'll accept you. But this expert council is outstanding. I don't think that everybody has ever put together a group of people like we have here at TSP. You can learn more by going to the About page, clicking on Meet the Expert Council, and uh, there's a link in every Expert Council show as well. So for today, 1697, there'll be a link to all the Expert Council members. You can learn more about them. Um, but you send me an email with TSP Expert in the subject line, and then I select two questions for each council member every month. And what we actually have today, instead of um, our typical number, Uh, which is either six or seven because of some stragglers and pikers along the way for the last round of the year. I have eight uh, questions keyed up for you today. They're all great. The council did a great job with them, and uh, we'll get those out to you today. Before we do that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today is a ready-made resources, the company that does what it says and says what it does right on their website. All the resources you need ready-made, ready to go at readymaderesources.com. And when I say all the resources, I mean it from the tactical to the practical, from guns to gardens and everything in between. You'll find it at ready-made resources. 12-volt appliances to go with your solar and wind projects? Check. They've got that. You want to do solar and wind? Hey, they've got everything you need for that. You want long-term storage food? You want it by the can or by the case? 
they've got it. You want to make your own long-term storage food? You need uh, Mylar bags and O2 absorbers? They've got that. You want gamma lids for your five-gallon buckets? Got it, check, no problem. You want to start canning, whether it's water bath or pressure canning, they've got what you need. Dehydrators, got that too. Want to get over and look at some tactical accessories or firearms if you're in their state or have an FFL to ship to? They've got it all, man. Like I said, the practical to the tactical, the guns to gardens, and everything in between. You'll find it all at the company that does what they say and says what they do. ReadyMadeResources.com, a long-term sponsor of the Survival Podcast. Happy to serve you with great pricing and great service. Again, ReadyMadeResources.com. Next up today, sponsor of the day number two, Sawtooth Tactical. You'll find them over at SawTac.com. You'll get all the stuff you need to live that tactical lifestyle if you get on over to SawTac. Veteran-owned, veteran-operated, and nestled in the wilderness of the Sawtooth Mountains. That's why they call them SawTac. And when I say everything, I mean everything from the awesome manly titanium spork, Maxpedition bags, Magpul magazine, SOE Tactical Gear, and everything else you can think of. If it's tactical, they have it at Sawtooth Tactical. Remember the website again, www.sawtac.com, and they also do do a discount for members of the Support Brigade. So if you're a member and you're going to get some tactical material from Sawtac, get into your MSB account, click on Benefits, and look up Sawtac and get that discount. Again, a veteran-owned, veteran-operated company nestled in the Sawtooth Wilderness of Idaho, sawtac.com. Next up, let me remind you about the Member Support Brigade. Hey, if you're looking to get somebody a gift for Christmas as a fellow TSP listener and not an MSB member, there's probably still time to get it in the mail to us and uh, make a, a membership a gift. The best way to do that is to go ahead and do that uh, by mail. If you want to give a gift of MSB and you don't want to do it by mail and you want to pay direct by PayPal, email me and put TSPC, uh, TSPC gift MSB in the subject line. And I'll hook you up. If you're going to do it with a mail-in form, please tell us where you want the notification sent. We've had a couple of gift orders this year where people say, this is a gift for my wife or my husband. Okay, great. And they give only the contact information for their wife or their husband. And we're trying to figure out what to do. We don't want to spoil the surprise if that was your intent. Or if you just want it sent right away, we'll do that. We just need to know, okay? Otherwise, everybody else, if you're not a member yet, hey, get in before the year ends because it's a one-year membership. It'll renew next year this time. It's not like you're going to only get the last part of the year like some kind of hunting license scam in some states or anything. I'm just saying. Great deals on stuff you're probably buying anyway. Great discounts, great value, and you help support the show. Learn more by going to survivalpodcast.com, clicking on members. And uh, next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode, the year 1697, because the episode's 1697. I have The Last Mayan Kingdom Falls, and then I have Daniel Defoe Proposes a Wealth Tax. That's the one I'm going to read for you. Both of these from Alex Shrugged at tspwiki.com. Daniel Defoe is best known for his book, Robinson Crusoe, which was published in 1719. But his first book is published this year in 1697. It's a series of essays, many of them brilliant, giving advice to the king and parliament about how to solve various sticky problems such as the disparity of taxes being paid by the poor and the rich. For example, there's a tax on alcoholic beverages. The poor laborer spends his meager wages on a drink which is taxed. The tax represents a large portion of the poor man's wages. A rich man likes beer as much as any poor man, but he can avoid paying tax by brewing his own. He has the facilities, the material, and the time to do so, and thus a rich man's contribution to the tax base is less than that of a poor man. Daniel's solution sounds like an income tax, but it's in fact a tax on accumulated wealth. 
He proposes a commission and inspectors to assess a person's wealth and tax him accordingly. Daniel will find favor under King William III, but years later he will write a satirical piece that will offend Parliament. Daniel will be pilloried and then sent to prison. His experience as a prisoner will show up on his future writings, such as the poems Hem to the Pillory. Um, for those of you who don't know what the pillory is, it's the stocks. Right, so uh, when you hear, put them in the stocks, it's the pillory is the same thing, basically. In the United States, we have an income tax, but not a wealth tax. Thus, when Warren Buffett complains that his secretary has a higher tax rate, 35.8% than he does, he is correct. He makes very little in a salary. He has long-term investments where he pays a capital gains tax. That is a different tax with a lower rate. So when you hear him say that he and his fellow investors are not paying their fair share in taxes, Watch out. Buffett is big. He can take a big tax hit and survive. But his competitors might not survive. It's like standing in a swimming pool as the water rises. If you can't shred water, only the tallest people in the pool survive. Then the tallest people can rightfully point out how many short people are drowning, and the Congress, oh, I mean the pool manager, will lower the water, leaving the tallest people with the pool all to themselves. And there's a, sec there's a second slide of hand going on here. Buffett brings in more income through capital gains than his secretary brings in for a salary, so there is more income to tax even at a lower rate. This is why President Ronald Reagan lowered tax rates. The actual tax money collected went up, not down. A smaller tax paid frequently and fairly produces more tax revenue than, for example, a super tax on luxury yachts. A yacht tax puts a lot of shipbuilders out of business and tax revenues go down. Um, my take on this. It is absolutely the case that if you tax people at lower rates, then um, receipts to government go up. Now, as an anarchist, I don't want receipts of taxes to the government to go up. So, in a weird way, I would actually be beneficial if I wished that we would have the highest tax rate on planet Earth, which we, we are pretty close to doing in some ways when you look at total taxes versus just What is the income and capital gains tax here? Because it would shit-can the economy. It would deny the government the ability to uh, raise enough tax revenue to do all the crap they're doing that I don't want them doing. And it would cause the state to implode upon itself. Well, they're not that stupid. They're not going to do that. So there's real no, no value in that other than a, a kind of a twisted thought experiment. And as an, I'm going to say this as an anarchist thing a couple times so that nobody gets pissed off at me from that world when I say, if you wanted to fix the current system, here's what you could do. Um, so... You, you, you have that fundamental reality there. There's a point you can go with too much taxes that you actually just destroy re tax receipts and you destroy your underlying economy. There is a point you can go too low where if you want to run a government and have all the crap that we have or even half of the crap that we have, it's just not enough no matter what happens. Um, and so that's the reality too. So the balance is always how do you tax in a way – that makes it where the government can perform its functions and the effect on the economy is positive rather than negative. If you put me in charge of the federal government right now, so Jack, you can't just destroy everything. You can't just like wipe. You actually have to try to make the system work the way that people are expecting it to work, the way the vast majority of the sheep want it to work, and you have to do it in a way that balances the budget uh, to a degree at least further than anybody has a plan to do right now. You actually have to make a go of this, and, and but you have full control over how we tax people uh, at the federal level anyway from here on out. Well, I would say, okay, so I can't say no income tax. No, you can't do that. Okay, so I, I can't just get rid of the income tax. No, okay. There's going to be an income tax. Okay, fine. 10% for everybody. 10% for corporations, 10% for individuals. Standard deductions only done. 
I mean, that would be it. And, and the tax revenue in this country would go through the roof. And there's, there's multiple reasons why. First of all, many small foreign corporations that are currently in nations where they are paying 17 to 57% income tax, somewhere in that bracket, would go, really? And they would want to locate their businesses in the United States. And as long as they were no threat to our security, I'd say, fine, do it. You're just going to pay our tax of 10%. The United States would become the place to build a business. We would attract the, the best entrepreneurs from all over the world. And if you want to start opening up the immigration uh, component, then bring people here that actually do something productive and, and, and build companies and become solid members of society And, and hire people and build jobs and create jobs, and that would do that. It would also take about 50% of the American working class that actually pays no income tax right now, and they would pay a fair, reasonable amount of income tax. I would get rid of all the bullshit. I'm talking the mortgage deduction, all that. Oh, gee, I could be a disaster. Not if you had a 10% tax, flat tax. It wouldn't. It, it really wouldn't. Yes, people that don't pay tax right now would pay tax. Fine, if we're going to have a tax, then everybody should pay tax. It would do... One thing that we've never been able to do in this country since the introduction of the graduated income tax, it would give the market pure certainty. Absolute pure certainty. If I, if my business makes a million dollars, my tax burns a hundred thousand. Every year, like clockwork. Now, when I say get rid of all like the, the, I'm talking about all these like scam deductions. So if you're running a business and you have a server cost or a payroll cost or whatever, all that stuff's still deductible because that's off profit. Okay, but your standard wages, tips, compensation, and, and no no separation to capital gains either. Everything's 10%. Capital gains right now is like 23%. In other words, you drop it 13%. Why would that be good? People like Buffett would have more money. Good, and then they'll put that money into more investments to spur an economy forward. And and then you would, the, the biggest thing you would do with this, you would destroy class warfare. You would absolutely destroy class warfare. Well, the rich people pay the same as you do. The poor people pay the same as you do. The middle class pay this. Everybody pays the same. That's actually the if you're going to have a tax, the only way to be equitable with a tax is for everybody to play by the same rules. Now, what I would prefer, no income tax. Now, there was a guy that said he would do that, and I think he meant well to do it, and I think he would have done it. And he said, if we at the time he said, if we simply cut back government spending to where it was nine years ago. We could pay for everything with no personal... Now, was, he wasn't going to get rid of the corporate income tax, just a personal income tax. And America rejected him. His name was Ron Paul. So America actually wants to pay taxes. That's the way I see it. Um, the American individual thinks it's necessary to pay tax on income. They've been so brainwashed, they believe there's no other way to run a country. So if you're going to make me do it the way they want it, I would just make a flat tax. Well, it's not enough money to pay for everything. Good, then we'll stop doing things. Then we'll start looking at all the things we're doing that we don't really need to be doing, and we'll stop doing those, and we'll spur on the private market. You're the one that made me president for this thought experiment, so you have to accept my answer. Uh, let's go ahead with that and, and get into the uh, actual uh, meat of today's show, which are your questions and uh, answers from the expert council members. This first one is for Michael Jordan. It's actually from me because it is the situation that I'm in. For me, it's not really an issue because I have a bee mentor who has hundreds of hives and has plenty of places for swarms to go uh, or, or for divisions to go. 
Uh, but for many people with a few hives, they may not have the same. So here's what I was thinking of that. So, Michael, can you please describe the basic method to divide a hive in spring, how you know that you need to divide the hive, and what a person should do who needs to divide the hive but doesn't really want another hive but must be divide for management purposes? Perhaps they live on a small property or just have the time and resources to work a few hives. For instance, I have three hives. I really do not want many more. How hard would it be for a small keeper to sell off only two to four divisions a year? Would it be best to work with a commercial keeper the way I do and always have an outlet for your surplus, Jack? So, Michael, what say you for the small keeper in this situation that has to deal with division? Michael Jordan of a bee-friendly company here, taking your questions on beekeeping, meads, and apiary site management by using practices from around the world I will help you with your backyard hobby beekeeping or even your small commercial operation. Question. So Jack shot out a large question that is like a third to fourth year beekeeper. Uh, I think it is like module 15 in my BDC course. So I had to pull out some of my books and some notes so I didn't sound like a fool. So I only have 10 minutes, so let's get out and get our honey on. Michael, can you please describe the basic methods to divide a hive in the spring? <clears throat> On how you know that you need to divide a hive? And what a person should do who needs to divide a hive but doesn't really want another hive but must do it for management purposes. Perhaps they live on a small property or just have time and resources to work a few hives. For instance, I have three hives. I really don't want any more. How hard would it be for a small keeper to sell off two to four divisions a year? Would it work best with a commercial beekeeper the way I do, who would always have an outlet for the surplus? Well, I'm going to go ahead and we're going to break this down into some parts here. We're going to take this first part. Michael, can you please describe the basic method to divide a hive in the spring? This is not every spring in apiary manage. You pick what hives are going to be splits and what are going to be honey flow. As you know, Jack, bees leave sometimes. Or we have weak hives or even kill-offs, out-of-control mites, wax larvae. We lose hives. So we pick hives, sometimes making more colonies, and some we pack full of bees for mass honey flow. Now, one can split hives for more bee colonies and still get honey. But when you have a hive that works with a force of about 80,000 to 130,000 bees, you force them to make honey first, more bees later. This is the management part for your winter bees. The growth. If the bees are 86 pounds with three deeps, I need to pack the bees in a smaller box, removing a box so they're two deep frames, making it so they can winterize. So here's an example. So in my part of the world, three deeps works best. I'm going to use Langstroth for simplicity. I say three deeps because you need a medium box per month of Darth. Darth is the time of no nectar flow. This can be hours of a day, a few days a week, parts of a month, and even lines out of a year. So I calculate that, and I have five months out of a year based on this system of Darth for my location on the planet Earth. I wanted to make that clear. Your spot is different unless you're using land mapping to see if you're in the same location somewhere on the planet. So based here, one deep box should be about 44 pounds with bees, honey, and all the equipment all ready to go. That means one box. So that's 132 pounds 
for three deeps that I, sh- uh, that I probably wouldn't have to feed them over the winter. Uh, that's a pretty damn good hive. Three deeps, 132 pounds, ready to go. So spring opens. I feed the hell out of those bees. Uh, I feed them a good liquid food mix. Bees need water now that they're coming out of their dormancy and lots of diversified sugars for pest resistance and colony growth. I do this at the end of February and start of March. And, uh, you know, I, I mix my, my feeds down. And I'm weaning them off the fondants and stuff like that. And I'm getting them in this liquid feed so they can either really start building comb or really doing some production so they can start cleaning and getting in there and uh, finishing off what I've, I've set with the new frames. <clears throat> now, by the end of February, March, is when I, I finish off the liquid feed. And in the middle of March, I add pollen patties and queen cups. Uh, this can also start a millet queening method or different types of uh, methods. You can even get in deeper lar- larva punch methods with uh, queening cups and splitting methods like Doolittle, but uh, there are so many ways to make queens. Uh, you have to find a way. But by the end of March, I see uh, the queen is in the laying uh, stages and laying about 1,800 brood a day uh, with some queen pods or cups or cells starting to be made. And uh, the ones that I've been started are starting to get capped. April, we hope to have some deep brood boxes. Uh, from last year's comb with about six full frames of brood and a row of queens. So we've we've went through this whole spring, starting at the end of February, feeding heavily, middle of March and introducing pollen in the queen cups or a queening system. And by April, we hope to have a deep box with last year's comb with six full frames of brood and a row of queens. Now there's about 4,500 cells per side on a deep frame box. So on a frame, there are 4,500 cells per side. So that's an average of around 9,000 cells on a frame. And you need to have more than half of that frame uh, with cat brood and no queen on it. No queen cups either. Uh, We're going to introduce those later. But now you have a deep frame that an average has 4,000 cat bees, which is almost three quarters of that side of that frame with cat brood. And you want both sides like that. So two frames would have an average of around two pounds of bees. Knowing that 1,400 bees, 1,400, is around a pound of bees, doubling that is around two pounds of bees. When we get to three pounds of bees, we're around about... Uh, 10,000 bees. So having uh, these two things, we're at two pounds of bees, averaging at about oh, 5,000. The frame that's keeping the broom warm will also have bees working on the frame. Each side of this frame, having 1,400 cat bees, will have an average working force of 1,200 bees. That's to keep the brood warm so it'll hatch. So two frames with 1,400 cat brood and two frames with 1,200 working bees, that's an average of four pounds of bees that you'll be putting in a nook box. 
Make sure that you're not inputting the queen in the nook box when you're pulling these frames out, but you're pulling them out, giving a good glance to making sure three quarters of that frame on both sides is full of bees and cat brood and installing in the mix. Two of those frames with the population of that is around four pounds of bees. So that's around a little bit more than about 10,000 bees. You're looking at around 15,000. Um, a nook box is used to increase small populations to larger ones faster. A nook is a small hive of frames. Uh, now some people just make large amounts of queens and dump bees into packages and add these queens and sugar feeders and that is a way to go but we don't do that. I'm going to say that again uh, we don't do that. We're going to make nooks so that they're popular. I can go into about why I think your bees will die in three years because of package bees but anybody that makes queens dumps their bees that have already been working into a thing and thinks you're going to help populate them really good in three years after they've been sick or three months after they've been sick and then feeding them sugar water to grow so they stay sick they don't always function and when they die off your population the next year is weak and in the third well you probably lost all those bees because they just never could get to working because they were sick so we build nooks I want to say that once more we build nooks so a nook usually has about five frames two of them are this brooding frames that have the four pounds of bees and now we're going to introduce the queens either the cups, the miller method, um, a grafting area, somewhere where we're going to get a queen in there. Uh, and now we also want to uh, add uh, two full frames of capped honey. Once I get that in there, I'm going to go ahead and screen off the nook so no bees can get out. And then this is going to sit there for three to five days. Uh, I try to get the queens in there three days before they hatch. Um, that way the pheromones are already starting in the new Kive colony. That usually they say that three days before she hats to five days she already starts releasing the pheromone, getting the hive acclimated to what she is. So three days I put the queens in, I drop these broods in, I drop in the honey frames in, I seal it all off, allowing her to build her pheromone and hatch naturally in that nook box. And in about nine days at the maximum, seven days accordingly, you can check that nook box. They should have eaten most of the honey. Uh, the queen should have hatched. And I've already been in the hive. And you can uh, open the door letting the bees out, watch things to see if she comes out. Um, you know, you just move that split and stuff. You know, you don't have to move it three miles or anything like that. Those bees should already be acclimating to that. And you should have drones already stop, uh, popping out. And they should already be starting to work with that nook. So you're already going to have comb pre-made in this nook now. Some honey supply so they can see what they're doing. And brood popping with a brand new queen. So on a side note, it's good to have a few drones in this nook for breeding. If you have four or five nooks, you're going to have a breeding stock going as these queens come out and start breeding in the air, giving you some more breeding space and different breeding options. So, on how uh, do you know you need to divide a hive? You'll be looking for brand new white comb being built. This is a sign that they're getting ready to swarm. If you've seen queen cups being made, they're going to swarm. We may, uh, we may not go for honey flow and rebuild our apiary and do splits 
from downsizing to grow even and repopulate even losses. Uh, we may split to make nooks to marry back in the highs at the end of the year to give them strength over the winter. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of reasons why you'll divide the hive. Uh, that's part of the management skill and the purpose of doing it. Um, this comes with the skill set. And what does a person should do to, that needs to uh, do this and all this and how they're going to do it and, and get rid of them if they don't want them and they have to do this? Uh, the end part, working with a commercial beekeeper, is not a bad idea. Uh, they're working for a living. If you want to do the pool boy thing and stuff, you know, Jason Smith can probably tell you more about coming in and managing stuff like that because my management is mostly with Boy Scouts and stuff. They, they work my beehives and I get their honey. And I have a couple other people that manage hives and I co-op their honey for my company uh, using my system. So getting a commercial beekeeper is not a bad idea, but join a club. Uh, look into state organizations. There are help out there. There's other beekeepers out there that want to come and help you. And you kick them a little cash, they'll come and work with you. And if you have good hives and good management, you can sell off a good nook for $150 to $200. And if you're selling packaged bees for more than $80, you're a jerk. Um, you want to get rid of these nooks and stuff? Uh, you need to place them on Craigslist, uh, Facebook, uh, any organized meeting, uh, you'll sell them. Uh, most of these, you know, if you're able to split your hives and you're not repopulating yours for losses, good hives, good bees. You'll probably get someone to get it. Hey, I'm, I'm ran over already a little bit here. This is the bee whisperer telling to get your honey from a keeper you respect. Support a, support a cottage industry and help a fellow man. For one day, you may need help too. Yeah, that was my big concern for people. Uh, it's like, well, what do you do? Like, Because I, I went and saw Chris Prater present at Nick Ferguson's workshop. And Prater is a guy that has come down on the standpoint with bees. If you really want to maximize production, you can either really maximize making bees or making honey. He maximizes making bees. And he has a really simple, quick, fast method of hive division. I was like, well, I could do that. But then if, if I divide this year... Um, I did lose a hive this year. But if I divided this year, okay, fine. I take one division, I use it to make a new hive. And I replace that. I got one. Okay, fine. Um, and my management's getting better. My knowledge is getting better, etc. So I get through this next season, I have three hives again. Now I divide all of them. Now I have six hives. Okay, I don't really want six hives. If I did go ahead and put three more hives in, and I, let's say I even lost one of those. I get down to five. I got ten. I don't want 10 beehives. I've only got five then to sell off. I, I just don't see that as being something I really want to spend a lot of effort to do. But if I can say, hey, uh, here to Mr. Keeper who sells all the time anyway, here's here's five nukes or whatever, that, that seems to make a lot more sense. And Michael there gave us some other options on how to do that. This next one was kind of a, a pinch hitting here for Chef Keith Snow. I got this question. I realized that like this would never get done by Christmas if I didn't kind of call Keith in on it as a pinch hitter, and he was good enough to do it. Question from James for Chef Keith Snow. It says, Christmas is coming up very quickly. Any tips or suggestions for cooking a goose for Christmas dinner? Around Thanksgiving, I noticed my grocery store specialty meat section had gone beyond Cornish hens and pheasant and now has capons and geese available. I remember that goose was a traditional holiday meal. And if Chef Keith has time, is there anything one would do differently with a capon than a typical chicken? So what do you say there, Chef Keith, on this uh, eve of the holidays? 
Hey, Chef Keith Snow from HarvestEating.com. And James, I wanted to talk with you, man, about the goose. Um, and before I get into the goose, you also mentioned that your grocery store is starting to get some things that are interesting and now has capons and geese available. And you asked the difference between uh, the capon and, and the typical chicken. Now, for those that don't know, capon is a rooster that's been um, – it, it, it's it's been it went through a, a thing called caponization, which is to slice off the yeah men are not going to be interested in that. But anyway, this this capon was a rooster, but when it was very young, um, it was castrated, and what that does is remove the sexual hormones from the bird as it grows up, so it tends to be. Um, more tender, has a higher ratio usually of white meat, and uh, it doesn't get that gamey, roostery flavor. So that's really the deal with capon, but treat it just the way you would any good roasted chicken. Um, but those are cool, and give it a try. Now, to your main deal, the Christmas goose. Now, the Christmas goose is um, not something that many Americans do. I think it's coming back in fashion a bit, but this is definitely something that was um, kind of old world European um, and other places, but definitely pretty big in Europe. And what's interesting about geese is that they've got quite a bit of fat on it, and it melts at a different rate or renders at a, at a different temperature than you know turkeys and stuff. A, a, a goose will render its fat, you know, not too much over 100 degrees, I don't know, 110, 115 degrees, and it will really render out nicely. Now, a duck is is higher than that, probably 125 or so, so it's quite easy to get the fat um, off of your roasted goose, and ducks for that matter. Now, this stuff is just unbelievable liquid gold to reserve and use for things like roasted potatoes. Uh, I always remember the the story of visiting a small village in France and uh, at the central market, the Leal, every week um, they would have these gas-fired rotisseries and they had all kinds of birds, um, ducks, pheasants, you name it, on these spits turning slowly and the fat would be dripping down you know, over the other birds and finally um, landing on some little round potatoes, small ones. And they would just, uh, and the bottom was heated too, but they would roast in that um, bird fat. And they had some sprigs of rosemary tossed in there, and, and that stuff was amazing. And it would be impossible to walk by that vendor's stand and not kind of uh, be led by your nose over to see what he was doing. So um, saving the fat that comes from your Christmas goose, th- this is going to be kind of a spiced fat, but it's perfect for cooking things like potatoes. Now, Let's prepare this goose. Um, when you get your goose, and I don't know where you're getting it, um, but you want to give it a good rinse in cold water in the sink, in, inside and out, and take out anything that may be in the cavity. If there's there's a neck bone or any uh, giblets, take those out of there and give the whole bird a nice rinsing. And then you're going to take some paper towels and pat it completely dry. Turn it over, make sure all the liquid comes out, and pat it dry. Now put it up on your work surface. Now, in order to spice the goose, and um, guys and gals out there in TSP land, uh, don't be trying to write this down while you're driving or anything like that. It will be in the show notes. Um, I will have the link to the recipe for 
for Jack to put to, in the show notes so you can get all the measurements if you decide to give this a whirl. So what you're going to do is um, the idea here is to um, do what they call scoring the fat. Now, if you ever cook a duck breast before, a lot of times you'll hear about scoring it, and that's simply to help render that fat. If you take a, a the point of a very sharp knife and you place it into the fat and just make lines, you're scoring it or pressing down, but you don't want to cut all the way down into the flesh. You just want to go very lightly, and you'll get a feel for the Feel for it after the first few slices or scores how deep the fat is. And a good fatty goose will have a good good bit of fat on there. So, And you want to do this about a quarter inch apart and start underneath the breast. So the, if you're looking at your bird, the cavity will be, you know, towards your stomach and then, you know, the breast will be um, in front of you on the board. So take the point of your knife and just and pull up. And you can do it on a nice diagonal path. Um, fashion. And what you're going to do is make a crisscross. So you're going to take lines about a quarter inch apart and the tip of that knife there, and you'll score um, the fat without going too far into it, but just slightly cutting it. And then you'll come back the other direction. And you're going to make, you know, like a checkerboard type pattern. What this is going to do is allow the fat to render more easily, but it's also going to give us some crannies and nooks to massage our nice spice mix into it. Now, because goose is, um, you know, fairly rich type of game meat, um, this type of mix is really great in there. And what you're going to do is in a dry skillet, you're going to take the uh, fennel seed and you want to buy whole fennel seeds. And you can get them at generally any supermarket, whole fennel seeds and whole coriander. And coriander happens to be the seed of the cilantro plant, if you don't know. So when your cilantro bolts and turns into those little green hard things, that's coriander that hasn't been dried. But you're going to get the, you have to get this at the supermarket. So fennel and coriander and just, you'll look at the recipe. What you want to do is toast it in a dry skillet. No oil, no nothing. You can use cast iron, stainless steel. It doesn't matter. Just put it on the, on the stove and warm it up and toss the spices in there or the seeds in there. And you're just going to move the pan around. And what will happen is you'll start to, pick up an incredible fragrance. Now, this is a this is the move that can go from incredible fragrance to acrid, bitter and burnt very quickly. And what a lot of people will do is they'll get, you know, good heavy bottom, you know, say cast iron skillet hot, they'll toast these spices and then they'll just turn off the the heat and leave it on top of the pan, but that pan carries so much residual heat, you will burn the spices. So, you just want to toast them moving them around and once you you may see a wisp of smoke, but you'll definitely start to smell something happening at that point. Remove the the uh, fennel and coriander from the pan and put, just put it on a cold plate and let it cool off. Now you're, you're done with that particular process. Once those are cool and you definitely want to give them, you know, 20 minutes or so to cool off because if you take them right away and throw them into your spice grinder, they have a tendency to want to steam a bit and that will kind of muck up the, um, it'll, it'll kind of clog up your spice grinder. So let them cool off and then you're going to pulse them in a spice grinder which we just use an old coffee grinder to do that. If you don't have a coffee grinder, you can use a uh, mortar and pestle, which is a pretty old school way of um, grinding it up. Or if you happen to be in a Latin kitchen and you can use a molcajete, which is a carved basically piece of lava rock into a bowl and it's got a lava lava rock pounder. I've got one of those. It's great for um, grinding things up. It's very abrasive. So once you make this powder out of the fennel and the coriander, we're going to then go and mix it with our cinnamon, cloves, 
And then we're going to take an orange and we're going to zest the orange. And the zester is that thing you, most people find in their, their, uh, junk drawer in the kitchen. And it's got a handle and these little funny metal kind of holes on the end. You use that. Or if you've got a microplane or, you know, one of those culinary rasps, you remove the zest from the orange. Now, when you're, when you're doing this, there's beautiful orange zest. And underneath that, you get to what's called pith, P-I-T-H, white pith. That stuff is fairly bitter. Then underneath that is the, you know, the flesh of the orange. So you just want to grade the, the, uh, orange zest off, moving that microplane or zester frequently. You don't want to get a bunch of the, the white pith. So once you have the zest off, you're going to add that to your spice mixture here. So for, um, fennel, coriander, cinnamon, and clove, you're going to add your, uh, kosher salt to it. Again, all the measurements will be in the recipe. And then you're going to cut the orange in half, and that's going to go into the um, cavity of the goose, and along with two shallots or a small onion cut in half and maybe sliced a few times and just in, in chunks. Throw the orange and the onion inside the bird. Um, and then you're going to take olive oil and add it to your spice mixture here and your zest. So your zest and spices are together with the olive oil. You make a bit of a paste. And then this is why you want your bird good and dry from the rinse. And the skin is already scored. Now you take this paste and you put it all over the bird everywhere, uh, up and down, um, all around the legs, the breast, and just rub it in there and really press it in. And you should really see the the work that you did with your crisscrossing um scoring you'll really see that checkerboard pattern if you did it correctly and again don't go too deep into the flesh because that is not what you want to do you just want to render the fat so once you have done that your bird is pretty much ready to go into the oven now i would roast a bird like this at about 375 degrees now remember don't take this bird out of a 37 degree refrigerator rinse it do this and throw it in the oven because if it goes in the oven, let's say at 45 degrees, um, you're going to have problems cooking it evenly. So do not be afraid of letting that bird sit out on the counter for an hour and a half at least. Nothing's going to happen. It's not going to rot. There's Food police aren't going to come. You want that thing as close to room temperature as possible. You don't want to try to you know, be rendering off the fat at 375 degrees preheated and then inside the bird you've got a refrigerator temperature because there's some thermal mass in there. You're going to have some oranges and um, onions in that cavity and things will not happen the way you want. So once that bird is cooked, and this is the, the portion of the, the advice where you need a properly calibrated um, thermometer, you'll make sure that the juices are running clear, the bird is cooked. You take the bird out and um, put it on your cutting board and take some good heavy-duty foil and completely cover the goose, you know, tucking it underneath, put a couple of kitchen towels over it and let that, let that thing rest for a good 25 minutes. Um, in the meantime, you would have made your, your gravy, and this is taking um, the red wine and prunes and sage. And I did say prunes, sunsweet pitted prunes. These things are going to be unbelievable here. You put it, put it in a sauce pot, so wine, your rubbed sage, and prunes. You're going to start with about three cups of wine. You're going to reduce it by half, so down to about a cup and a half, and that's going to intensify all the flavors. Then you want that mixture to cool off. You're going to run it through your Vitamix or blender until everything is nice and smooth. 
Then you're going to take that mixture, add it to your good quality chicken broth. You're going to season it with some salt and pepper, bring it up to a simmer. Then you're going to thicken it with a cornstarch slurry, 50% cornstarch, 50% cold water, whisk it up. You're not going to need a lot. Um, you'll put it in there until it gets to the consistency that you want and tastes good with salt and pepper and all that. And then you'll turn it off and whisk in a couple tablespoons of butter. And now your beautiful um, red wine and prune gravy is um, done. Then you can slow, slice your bird and you will have an unbelievable Christmas feast. Now, what I like to do with um, geese like this is put peeled carrots, um, big half-inch slices of rutabaga, and this is the golden rutabaga, not the purple and white one, um, peeled, of course. You peel off that heavy, waxy skin and cut it into chunks, and some onions. So the, the goose will roast on uh, carrots, rutabagas, and onions. Those things get really happy with all this flavor, and I like to just serve those on the side. And uh, that is pretty much... Um, trying to think if I left anything out. I know I'm running a little long. Sorry, Jack. But that's about it. And you will have an amazing feast there. And again, the recipe will be over at harvesteating.com or maybe Jack will post it on Facebook, whatever. If you don't see it somewhere, Keith at harvesteating.com. I'll make sure you get it. Um, I wanted to mention to everyone out there because my um, spices that you guys and gals love so much at TSP are now available over at Amazon.com, and today, I believe is Friday, they fulfill really quickly. They may make it there for Christmas, but the bigger issue is those of you that have ordered my spices in the past, I would greatly, greatly appreciate if you could visit Amazon. Just do a search for Harvest Eating Spices, and uh, you should be able to find them. And uh, if you could leave me a review, that would be great, because until you get some reviews on Amazon, you're you're in the black hole. So that that's it, and... Uh, I greatly appreciate everybody's support and hope everybody has a Merry Christmas. And Jack, Merry Christmas to you, man. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. And per usual, now I'm hungry. Um, I, I do want to throw out an interesting little tidbit to me on geese and why I think that geese are not uh, traditional uh, fare in America the way they used to be in, in Europe and, and still are in Europe to a large degree out of tradition. Number one... Geese were commonly consumed in the United States and, and not so commonly raised. Up until um, we got really stupid over here and wiped out almost all of our wild game. Uh, by the time the Great Depression came around, people weren't living on a lot of wild game because there wasn't much left. We wiped out the eastern elk. We wiped out the bison. Uh, we wiped waterfowl out to almost the state of non-existence. And a, a goose in this country, up until we got really stupid with that... Um, If you wanted a goose, you just went out and shot a goose. So there were farms that had geese. There are some older heritage geese in, in this country and all. But in general, geese weren't generally raised. They were taken from the wild. And then by the time that wasn't possible anymore, we had really gravitated toward the turkey for commercial production. And, and that was kind of the way of things going forward. And today, if you've ever priced a goose compared to a turkey, they're much more expensive And they have much less of a yield. A big goose, a big goose, is going to weigh 11 to 12 pounds as a carcass. That's a, that's actually a very large goose carcass. Uh, a lot of them are going to weigh in more around the the the, the, the chicken, large chicken range, seven-ish pounds. 
And you're actually kind of surprised when you cook a goose and you de-breast it how small the breast is for the keel compared to the deep breast that we're used to with our, our large chickens and, and turkeys and capons and things like that. So the American palate had just kind of steered over that way. And uh, there's also a certain important thing to understand about traditional goose cooking and like what Keith just gave you. Geese in the old world were generally uh, like used like little cows, grazers, which is what they're, they're great for. And, and they were tough birds, and they could make it through winter, and you had a goose flock on your little farm or whatever. And the nice thing was whenever you wanted a sizable portion of meat or two, you just went out and whacked a couple geese and, and cooked them. And they were cooked a lot of times fireside, kind of rotisserie, like his story started out, you know, the goose fat rendering out, being used to cook potatoes and other things. Um But they were cooked very, very slowly. Because this is the important thing. If you want to self-harvest geese, and any goose hunter will tell you the same, adult geese are not tender. They take a long, slow cook. And the good news is, because of how much fat they have, if you do it right, you can do it. The geese that you buy in the store are somewhere between 9 and 13 weeks at slaughter. They've never, because even domestic geese can fly some, they've never really flown They, they, they are very, very tender for what they are, and the type of cooking Keith gave you will make them phenomenal. You, you need to cook a little slower and a little longer, and you're not going to be doing so much of the, you know, medium rare, uh, goose breast like we do with duck breasts with an older goose. It just, it just isn't going to happen. Because when they get bigger like that, they do get, or older. They don't even get, that's the thing. If you raise geese on grass, you will put a, a, a mid-sized to large breed of goose in, in the range of 10 to 14 pounds on the foot in 11 weeks on good grass with very little supplemental feed. And if you supplemental feed them, you might put an extra pound on them. And when I say, when you supplement, I mean if you actually in, in large amounts of supplemental feed. As they start to grow, they, they really don't even want feed that much. If they have good grass, they're going to want to eat it. After that point, it'll take them almost a year to put another few pounds on, and they will be tough. So if you're raising geese for meat or you're going to go ahead and harvest an older goose, just be prepared to, be prepared to spend some more time. And, and, and this is the other thing I want to tell you. When you hear great recipes like this from Keith, sure, go ahead and cook it exactly the way he said. But don't be afraid to change things to your taste because all I could think of when he said prunes was like, yeah, I, prunes, I see prunes being good in that. You know what would be better? Cranberries. Mm. Imagine dried cranberries or half prunes, half cranberries in that and tart that stuff up a little bit. But I like cranberries. You might not do a prunes. Anyway, let's go ahead and take the next one. This one. It's for Steve Harris. Uh, so we haven't heard from Steve much recently. He's got his voice back. He had some things that kind of interfere with that. And, boy, I know what that struggle's like. Anyway, I get constant emails, and Steve's been getting constant emails. And I'm seeing people at Costco and other places, all these lithium-ion battery packs for jumping your car. And some of these things are about as big as, like, three iPhones stacked together. And, obviously, my skeptical sense is up. I, I know the person that likes the trash being ripped off on a supposed superpower lightsaber project more than anybody else is Steve Harris. So instead of digging into this myself, uh, I kicked it over to Steve. Steve, what about all these lithium-ion super packs for our cars? Hi, this is Steve Harris calling in for the expert panel to answer your question. Jack keeps on getting these emails and forwarding them to me, and I keep on getting these emails from you. People sending me emails about these lithium-ion battery banks 
they're about the size of your hand and about an inch or two so thick. And you can use them to jumpstart your car if your car battery ever dies. And people will write to me and say, look, here's a video. It's jumpstarting a school bus. Hey, look, here's one powering a lightsaber. And I said, what do you think, Steve? Should I use them? Well, let's put it this way. Would you go and buy a really crappy rifle, one that, uh, you know, didn't feed too well, the sights were off, didn't work properly, only took a certain type of ammunition, and then would you buy a really nice pistol to go on your hip and say, well, this pistol's for backup in case my rifle doesn't work? Or would you buy a really good rifle, one that shot to many hundreds of yards? See, rifles shoot hundreds of yards. Pistols shoot tens of yards. The pistol is no substitute for having a damn good rifle. I know Jack's talked about damn good rifles, and you should have a damn good rifle. So would you have the crappy rifle and the pistol, or would you just rather have a damn good rifle that wasn't going to let you down ever? The same thing goes true with your battery. Look, you could be stuck out in the middle of Montana in winter in a blizzard and not be able you know, to start your car, and you can end up freezing to death. So your life can absolutely depend upon it. And some of these battery banks, these lithium-ion batteries, they're like 100 or $120. You know, for that price, you can have a damn good brand new battery installed in your car, one that is not going to let you down. And that's what you really need to have. You don't need to have a backup. You need to have something in your car that your life depends upon that works, and that is a damn good battery. The second you turn your key on your car and you hear it go, instead of starting right away, you hear, you know, it starts up. You're taking that car to the shop, to Sears or wherever, and you're replacing that battery. And you're replacing it right away because a damn good battery in your car is a number one requirement for the safety of you and your family and your preparedness. So, I mean, what do you want to spend your money on? The really good pistol or the really good rifle? You know, why would you have a really good, you know, battery bank to jump your car when you got a crappy battery in it? You should just have a good battery to start with. Now, I can tell you why Jack likes to have a portable battery in his car. It's so he can help other people. When he sees someone in the parking lot, he can pull out his little battery bank, his little lithium-ion battery, and he can go and help that person jump their car, and away they go. Jack is very much a good Samaritan. I don't want to do that. I don't want to have a battery to do that. Uh, that lithium-ion battery is going to have a life of four, five, six, seven years, and then it's you know a brick. I'd rather take that f- a fraction of that hundred bucks for that. Uh, battery and go get a pair of really good jumper cables. I got 24 foot super heavy gauge ultimate wonderful clamps uh, jumper cables in my pickup truck and of course I got a toolbox in the back of my pickup truck in which I can carry this stuff but those jumper cables will well, last me the rest of my life and if I needed to help someone all I do is pull up and put those jumper cables on. Now the other thing is this battery bank is really not starting the car. 
It just looks like it's starting the car. What you do is you take this little lithium-ion battery pack and you you clamp it onto the battery of the car with the dead battery and you wait five to ten minutes. And what it's doing is it's putting energy into that battery. You're not it takes two hundred and fifty, three, four hundred amps to start a car sometimes. If it's a cold winter in Minnesota, it can be eight hundred amps. You're not pulling that out of this little, you know, battery bank with you know the wires. They're thick wires, but they're like 14 or 12 gauge, they're not like zero gauge. And this is the way you should jump start any car, even with jumper cables, is you attach the jumper cables to your vehicle, then you attach the jumper cables to the vehicle to jump start, and you let your car idle for five or ten minutes. And you put energy into the other person's battery. And that's what you do with this little lithium ion thing is you put energy into the other person's battery. And then you go turn the starter and the car starts up because it's starting off the energy that you put into its own battery. See, its own battery has this super wonderful thick cable with wonderful connections from the battery all the way down to the starter. And that's the most reliable way of doing it. So it looks like you're putting this little lithium-ion battery there, and it's starting in the car, but in reality, it's not. It's just dumping energy into the car battery, and you're starting off the car battery, which, like I said, is the way you should jump or any vehicle, is you always let your vehicle idle and put energy in another car, and then you start it off of that. So I really think that 100 or 120 bucks is better spent on other things than preparedness. You know, and plus it gives you a false sense of security. It's like I got this little magic box. I don't need to have a good battery. In reality, you really do need to have a good battery. And so I think that money is really better spent elsewhere. So if, you know, you're, you got money burning a hole in your pocket, you got money to spare, and you got three months of food and water and medical supplies, and you got a Harris battery bank, and, you know, plenty of fuel stored for your car and everything, and you just feel you're really dialed in, you want to get this thing, okay, go ahead and get it. You may be able to help someone else with it, but make sure you got a damn good battery in your vehicle to start with. And just use it for helping other people. You don't want to have to ever use it on yourself. So, with that said, I want to wish everyone a very Merry Christmas, a wonderfully Happy New Year. Uh, unlike me at the moment, having a little bit of a cold, I hope your health and the health of your family is absolutely excellent. And I hope it's a good time had by all and a very memorable holiday season for everyone listening. With that, I'm Steve Harris on the Expert Panel. You can find all of my stuff I have done with Jack with plenty of true stories and uh, testimonials at www.steven1234.com. See you guys next year. Bye-bye. Well, Steve's right, and I disagree with him at the same time in, in some ways. First of all, um, I also carry jumper cables, and I carry great big heavy-duty long jumper cables in my giant F-350 pickup that I could probably reach the front end of somebody's car, even if they were parked in on all six sides with, because there's room there for that. I don't carry a huge giant set of heavy-gauge long-ass jumper cables in my Toyota 4Runner because I don't really have that much space in there for stuff like that. So I have a standard set of jumper cables, and sometimes it's difficult to actually jump a car for somebody else in a situation like that where a smaller battery pack thing might be useful. I used to keep a Power Dome uh, XL in all my vehicles, and Steve talked me out of using them, 
And recently I came up with a situation where uh, I should have kept a, a newer one in the vehicle at all times, and it would have been better had I had it than not had it, because two is one, two is one, one is none, three is for me, four is more, and five keeps you alive. And I'm at least a five keeps you alive kind of guy when it comes to my preparedness. Now, where I agree with Steve is... If, if you don't have a, at least, you know, a month of food and water stored up in your home, if you don't have a basic bug out bag, if you, I mean, if you're just starting, this is not the place you start. It absolutely is not. And if you have concerns about, you know, your vehicle making it through this winter, by all means, go buy the best battery for your vehicle you can afford right now. And at minimum, have a set of basic jumper cables with your vehicle. Um, that goes without saying, but I am far more, Uh, accepting of these types of devices. Now, the new super-duper high-powered small lithium-ion badass boxes. I haven't actually looked into their capabilities, their life expectancy, etc., and said, do these things actually uh, warrant greater consideration than a good old-fashioned Power Dome XL? Uh, they have a newer model now. It's, it's 400 watts versus the original 200, though the original can be bought with, with, with the 400 watt. I don't really see much value to that because they are not a lightsaber in, in Steve Harris's words. And you're not going to be pulling 400 watts off one for very damn long uh, anyway. They do have an air compressor built into them. Uh, it is pretty useless. It is not going to put your tires up at a nice 38 PSI or whatever it is your tires are supposed to be running with. They're certainly not going to fill up a large pickup truck tire like on my F-350. I have a pretty badass air compressor to do that with my uh, truck. But if your tire's like almost completely fat, but the bead's not broken off it yet, it'll put enough air in it to drive the damn car somewhere where you can fix it without being run over by a semi-truck. They do have a light on them. They're multifunctional. They have a radio. They do more than one thing. They can actually be left on a, uh, you know, you can actually plug them into your cigarette lighter to charge them up. So if you made a habit of the first of every month plugging that thing in while you drove around with it, it's going to be pretty well topped off. Do they have a life expectancy? Sure, so do I. So does my car. So does everything else. Um, I, I can just tell you there's been times that I've had those things, and I've been like, this is perfect. Uh, you have people with little-ass cars and tiny-ass batteries, and you, you, you can't get in there with big clamps. You have these little, little smaller clamps to get on them. They're parked in some weird place. They're in the, the, the market parking lot or whatever. You can't get in there with your vehicle to jump them off. You grab this thing. You, you start them up. You send them on their way. Um, and again, jumper cables, a power pack, a new battery, additional op, you know, options like I am a member of AAA. I will always be a member of AAA, not just for batteries but for other things. And the new battery idea is great. Right up until some dumbass leaves your door not quite shut and you have an older vehicle where it doesn't know to turn the dome light out and your dome light sits on during the day for 14 hours and your battery is not just dead, but DEA all the way dead. I am not opposed to these additional redundancies at all in any way, shape, or form. But for now, I look at something like the Wagon 400 Power Dome Jump Starter with the built-in compressor and LED and all that shit for $100. Uh, with like a, it's like an 18 amp hour battery on it. And I just think it's, for me, it's a more proven technology. Um, it is more functional. It does take up more space. And my, I'm gonna, I'm gonna reserve my opinion on these things because Steve didn't dig into what they can do. What is their actual capabilities? He just basically 
gave the standard answer he's given to these power domes in the past. I'll dig into it and see what I think of the overall functionality of them. With that, I have a question for uh, Jeff Lawton. Uh, on the value of permaculture teacher training, specifically uh, from the PRI. Basic question is, what are the benefits and advantages of taking permaculture teacher's course? Recently finished my PDC and would like to teach the course. Is the teacher certification necessary to teach and issue PDC certificates? What advantages of service would be available afterwards as a certified instructor? Regards, Jim near Houston, Texas. So, Jeff, let us know about this one. Hi folks, Jeff Lawton here coming to you from Australia and I'm answering a question here which is what are the benefits and advantages of taking a permaculture teacher's course? Well we do at the Permaculture Research Institute here in Australia at Zaytuna Farm we do teach teachers training courses, basically permaculture teachers courses. They cover PDCs, permaculture design certificate course teaching and specialist teaching. Uh, we help you with um, teaching techniques. Uh, we he, we help you with delivery techniques. We help you uh, go through what to expect when covering the subject of permaculture, which is so diverse. And uh, the way we've had the best results with uh, providing um, classrooms and examples and uh, different styles of teaching. Um, that's about it. And it doesn't register you as a teacher, but it gives you some extra experience and you get to hear from some of us who've had good results in teaching. Then the question goes on in details. I've recently finished my PDC and would like to teach the course. Is a teacher certificate certification necessary to teach and issue PDC certificates? What advantages and services would be available afterwards as a certified instructor? Well, you can teach the PDC after you've taken a PDC. In fact, to quote the second page of the preface in the Permaculture Designer's Manual by Bill Mollison, it says, the word permaculture can be used by anyone adhering to the ethics and principles express, expressed herein. The only restriction on use is that of teaching. Only graduates of a permaculture institute can teach permaculture and they adhere to agreed-on curricula developed by the College of Graduates of the Institutes of Permaculture. So if you've taken a course with a teacher that comes out of a permaculture institute, somewhere in their lineage, then you can go out and teach permaculture, and that's what Bill Mollison says. You can teach a PDC after taking a PDC, as long as you've taken your PDC with a, with a, a reasonably well-known teacher who comes out of one of the permaculture institutes. Now, we certain institutes do accredit their teachers, um, certify their instructors. Permaculture Research Institute of Australia has a teacher's um, certified system, so we have um, accredited permaculture teachers of the Permaculture Research Institute, and you can see them um, listed on permacultureglobal.org. Uh, they agree to put their curricula up. Um, they go through a, um, a registration process, which does cost some money to get into the program and then go through the program. We ask you to already have 50 hours of teaching experience on PDCs as a teacher or an associate teacher, and we ask you to have been involved in at least 10 projects so we know you have some experience. And then your curricula has to be passed, 
um, and then we you have to agree to have that put up for everybody to view on Permaculture Global as a permaculture registered teacher. Um, we give you uh, full advertising on Permaculture Global. We help you promote your courses and um, we try and get you in front of your audience. And um, you can teach at our site and um, you can book in to uh, teach courses at our site and other Permaculture Research Institute registered master plan sites around the planet. Now, I don't know what everybody else offers on institutes uh, with their registered teachers, but it's probably something similar. It gives you a level of credibility that you come up to a standard of an institute, Permaculture Institute, that they're already set in. We have a standard we expect people to maintain because we want to maintain our credibility because we're doing important work worldwide. Um, if you are not registered, you can still um, print your own certificates and register your own students with your own printed certificate. And many many uh, many teachers do that worldwide. I've done. I did it for many many years before I uh, was invited to manage the Permaculture Institute for Bill Mollison and register the Permaculture Research Institute. So we give the institute certificates out. We have our own certificate as well. We print a PRI, Permaculture Research Institute certificate, and many people print their own certificates as institutes or as individual itinerant teachers. Well, I hope this has answered your question. Um, look forward to the next one coming to you from Australia. Cheers. I'd like to add a little bit to this. Um, first and foremost, when someone asks me who I have my PDC from, if, if, if that's ever asked, I respond with Jeff Lawton. The truth is I've taken three. And I, was, I respond with Jeff Lawton not because... Uh, of any disservice to the other teachers I have PDCs from, though one of them was less than stellar. And I don't need to point out who that person is because uh, kind of germane to what I'm going to say. They're not in the business anymore of doing it. So, you know, that kind of is what it is. It's that Jeff's Jeff. He's widely known. And, and, and I don't say it because he's from the PRI. Um, I say it because... I'm proud that I've completed a PDC taught by Jeff Lawton because of Jeff Lawton's results. You shall know a tree by its fruit, so to speak. And there's a lot of fruit from that tree. And that kind of goes in line with what I'm saying next. So when Jeff talks about carrying the PRI seal with your certification of your students, if you choose to do that, they have complete say over that because that's who they are. And when he says other people just teach and issue their own certificates or have their own accreditations or whatever, that's true too. What, what's going on said here that's important that we understand, there is absolutely no one that truly has any say whatsoever of who can and can't use the word permaculture. What individual organizations, accrediting groups, etc. have control over is saying, We're, we're permaculture certified with a PDC under the PRI of Australia. Uh, the PRI of Australia certainly can say, yes, they are, or no, they're not, with any standards they want to. Permaculture, and I don't mean this politically, I mean this in, in the truest meaning of the word, is truly in of itself an anarchy. I don't get to say what permaculture is. Jeff Lawton doesn't get to say what permaculture is. And because of the way he, he released permaculture to the world... Even Bill Mollison and David Holgram don't really get to say what permaculture is. They made it in anarchy, even though that wouldn't be the word that Bill would choose to use himself. I think it is the word David would use. In other words, they made sure 
that the university system could not get their grubby hands on it and ruin it. They made sure that no one would ever own it and no one would ever fully control it. And because of that, people rise as leaders in the permaculture industry not because they have a certification or they've worked with somebody or what have you. They, they rise as leaders because of their deeds, their action, their teaching, and their results. And I love that about permaculture. It is pure because of that. And, and multiple attempts have been made to corrupt it and turn it into kind of this leftist-leaning, hippie thing. And, and, and the, the people in that wing hate the fact that they can't do it. They can't do it, they can't do it, they can't do it. No more so than a group of, uh, let's say, militant, right-leaning anarchists can't get their hands around permaculture and drag it to be, that's what permaculture is. It, 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 it is simply a design science based on methodologies that, that, that range from extremely high-tech to basic common sense, that, that range from the newest to the most ancient, and, and a way of thinking and putting things together, and it is what it is. You, you can't control it. You can't own it. So when you take things like an advanced class or certified by this or certified by that, you're doing it for the knowledge that it conveys and however you see yourself going forward with that knowledge and that, that credential and that background and how much you think somebody will care about it. So again, it's completely pure. It, it, it's not like, well, I went to Harvard. Well, whatever, right? But there's a certain amount of cachet that just buys you. Do you have a degree from Harvard or an MBA from Yale or whatever? Though if they keep putting out students like they are now, that may change. There's a certain amount of, of just because of the university system being what it is and controlled and managed as a hierarchical system, that that, that has certain buy-in to certain qualifications somewhere. You can't go anywhere with any PDC or any permaculture certification for anyone and say, I want a job, and they just say, okay, since you have that, you've, you've crossed one of the bridges toward qualification. It's an entrepreneurial world. And I've said this many times, but it bears repeating now. The beauty of permaculture is it's, it's colorblind, it's genderblind, it's everything blind. A tree does not care what color you are, how tall you are, uh, whether you're smart or stupid. A tree will grow because it was given what it needs to grow. A duck will live and produce eggs because it was given what it needs to live and produce eggs. If you fail, the feedback from, from those things is instantaneous. You can build a business on permaculture, and if you do it wrong, your business fails. The feedback is almost instantaneous, and you know that you've messed up. And the results are the proof. That, that's kind of my addition to everything that Jeff had to say. Next question is for Dr. Bones. This was an interesting one that I'd really never even thought of before. Um, this question is, is there an antifungal medication that people could buy in the same way that there are antibiotics a person could buy, like fish mocks and stockpile for hard times without a prescription? Background, I'm a nurse, uh, a husband, a father, and have seen thrush yeast infections, various rashes on patients and family which require prescription medication for cure. What would you suggest a prepper to stockpile as treatment for the situation, either traditional herbal medicine? Thank you, Dean. That's, that's really an awesome question because everybody focuses on the antibiotics. What about the antifungal world, uh, old Dr. Bones? 
Hi, Joe Alton here, also known as Dr. Bones of www.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over 700 posts on medical preparedness for any disaster. This week's question for the Survival Podcast Expert Council is from Dean, a nurse who asks, is there an antifungal medication that someone can buy in the same way that there are antibiotics that a person can buy, like fish mocks, to stockpile for hard times without having a prescription? Dean, I don't talk about fungal meds a lot because the most common fungal infections relate to the skin, and they can be treated with ointments and powders such as clotrimazole, brand name Lotrimin, or myconazole, brand name Monistat, and others. As many of these are over-the-counter, they can and should be stockpiled in quantity. Even gold bond powder, a combination of menthol and zinc oxide, would be soothing for certain fungal infections such as jockage. There are, however, fish medications that are targeted for fungal infections, but only one appears to have an active ingredient in human dosage, and that is ketoconazole. Human brand name is Nizorol, and sold under the aquatic brand name Fish Fungus. Ketoconazole 200 milligrams is used to treat problematic internal infections, such as valley fever, a fungal infection also known as coccidiomycosis, and a number of other systemic fungal uh, issues. The problem here is that treatment for some of these is of long duration, sometimes six months of daily treatment due to the persistence of the organism. This makes it impractical for inclusion in your survival medicine cabinet. Also, the Food and Drug Administration warns that taking ketoconazole orally can cause severe liver and adrenal gland problems, and it's even contraindicated in pregnant women. It states that ketoconazole oral tablets should not be a first-line treatment for any fungal infection, and instead recommends the drug fluconazole, a prescription-only tablet called Diflucan in its brand form, and it appears to be pretty well tolerated. Now, having said this, most doctors will be willing to give you an extra prescription for fluconazole or other fungal meds if there is a history of fungal infections resistant to the -the over-the-counter measures. Of course, a plan of action to prevent fungal infections is very important. Keep your feet, hair, and skin as dry as possible. Switch shoes and socks out to allow them to dry. Use antifungal or talcum powder on problem areas. Keep footwear on if you wash in public showers like at a gym. And don't share personal items like brushes, towels, and other stuff. Check your pets for the telltale ringworm rash. They can pass it on. This is Joe Alton, MD, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Good stuff from Dr. Bones. You know, one of the things I love about these expert counsel shows is the wide variety that we're able to cover from people that are truly experts. And in this case, uh, the next one up is, is a perfect example of that. I can think of no one that I would call first if I had questions about just about anything tactical and specifically concealed carry. Uh, then Brian Black at ITS Tactical. He's not just one of my best friends in the world. He's also one of the best experts in the world at these types of subjects. And compared to everything else we talked about today, this is completely different. And that's what I love, again, about what I do at TSP, the huge variety and the variety showcase that we get in these shows. This question for Brian, I'll give you the basic short question because he's going to read the longer one. Hey, man, I am in need of an ultra-covert pistol and holster combo. This comes from John. Brian, what do you do for ultra-covert and... Tell us a little bit more about this specific situation uh, with your answer. Hey, TSP, this is Brian Black from ITS Tactical, answering a question from John. 
who has a little bit of a long-winded one here, but I'm going to read it anyway. So, hey, man, I'm in need of an ultra-covert pistol and holster combo. Um, he has just recently landed a good job after a year looking in a bad neighborhood. People have literally been murdered on his block, and he doesn't feel that his tactical pen, situation awareness, and hand-to-hand skills are enough. Um, also, to make things worse, his employer is a gun-free zone. He's willing to accept the possibility of a misdemeanor charge if he ever has to use my use his weapon, but if it were accidentally seen without being purposely deployed, it would certainly mean an end to my job and perhaps career on top of that. Considering scrubs barely cover my body, my normal daily carry Glock 27 and Galco in the waistband holster aren't going to work. What kind of gun can I make truly disappear until it's needed? Okay, so John, a couple of things here. So first off, um, I would look into the new I've picked one up myself. I love it. I can't say enough good things about it. It's a single stack magazine. It's probably the small Glock um, that I would carry. It's still a nine millimeter, which is great. And I would look into a couple of different holster options. Um, kind of the deep concealment carry. You can either go with a company called Smart Carry or their Thunderwear. I actually did a little head to head face off between the two types of holsters. Uh, between Thunderwear and Smart Carry on our website, and I will make sure Jack gets the link to post it to show notes. Uh, but that is what I would recommend. Um, obviously, I feel that um, good situational awareness and uh, your skill sets that you're kind of neglecting there would help you out quite a bit, too, depending on the situation, obviously. But um, I would look into those holster options, and I hope that uh, hope that helps you out. So, again, John, thanks for the question. TSB, thank you guys for having me. Uh, keep the questions coming. Remember to check out ITS for your daily dose of skill sets and resources to help you explore the world and prevail against all threats. www.itsactical.com. Thanks, guys. Well, don't rewind. Uh, there was the one fade out there uh, that w- couldn't have come at the worst time when he actually gave you the model of the gun that he recommended. Based on the context uh, and the maker and prior conversations with Brian about this subject, I'm almost a thousand percent sure what he said was Glock G43. Single stack, nine millimeters, smallest Glock ever made. Really a great gun. It's something I'm seriously considering getting one of for myself as a New Year's present. Uh, because I do think that's a fantastic gun. And uh, I do have a link to where you can take a look at the G43. Glock also makes what's called the G42, which is a 380 version, though I don't think it's really enough more compact in any way, shape, or form to warrant stepping down from 9mm to 380. The, uh, the, the, the uh, .42 is, is a little smaller. It's also lighter. It is uh, three to four ounces lighter, but some of that is just in, I guess, the ammo, honestly, um, and what you'd normally carry when you look at it loaded. The two, I've handled both. I can tell the difference. The the, the 42 is, if you wanted to pocket carry or something like that, probably a better choice. Um, personally, for me, I don't really want to go below nine millimeter as a carry gun. So I would also side with the 43, and again, because Brian said it's still 9mm, it's almost 100% what he was recommending. Another option, though, and I don't know that it works for here, somebody carrying in scrubs, but for ultimate kind of concealed carry 
is something like the Ruger LCP using a, um, a wallet holster. Some people don't like this. Some people think it's a terrible idea. It's, it's more difficult to clear malfunctions and things. There's a rumor that they're illegal. If the gun itself is exposed, as it is when you actually examine uh, the holster that I would recommend for the LCP, and there's a few other guns, I think the Bodyguard and a few other guns have these holsters or the same holster works for them, would work now you're going down to a 380 here but for a backup that you really wanted to be highly concealable i think these work well they don't print like a gun uh even if they're somewhat seen they don't really look like a gun they're less likely to be noticed by somebody you wouldn't want to notice them and it may be an option for people in this type of situation with a different type of dress code i'm just saying especially someone that wears a suit coat that might carry it on the inside breast pocket on the weak side, so it's a strong side draw, especially as a backup or in certain situations where, yes, you can carry, but you really don't want to be observed carrying, or technically you shouldn't be carrying like this. Um, and I would also say that some of you that live in the world of gun-free work zones, if you choose to carry... It is also highly probable that if you ever had to deploy your weapon, it may not be where it's actually not permitted to carry. Because if you have to walk somewhere between your work and your vehicle, unless that's on company property, uh, which sometimes it is, um, that's probably where you're more at risk. You're, you're, it is just scrubs I hear. I hear hospital in my head when I hear that. So I think that while somebody might walk into a hospital and start shooting, it's actually more likely that you'd be accosted uh, going to your vehicle or something like that. So um, is it worth the risk? I can't say that. I can't say it is or it isn't. What I, what I can say is I think if you were in a, a life-threatening situation, you were able to save your life or someone else's life, and you lost a job over it or got a fine over it, Uh, and you maybe even could fight that in court and say this is exactly why I'm a concealed carry holder, blow, whatever. Um, the, I don't think you'd ever regret the fine. I don't think you'd re regret a misdemeanor conviction if you really felt your life was on the line. If you got nailed for it without that, you might. I don't know. It's, it's again, a personal choice. But I think if someone died or you ended up crippled for the rest of your life, seriously injured, because um, you can't regret things once you're dead, um, But any type of those things happen and you chose not to, I think you probably would regret that. But this is a serious decision that sadly many of us are being put into is to have to make a decision about whether we carry or don't. But I, 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 I want to put it in perspective with this. This San Bernardino shooting, um, there was a man who died with his body wrapped around a woman to defend her and she did survive. Seriously injured, but she survived because of his actions. Um, I think had he carried, this guy was a former uh, prior service Marine, I believe, but he was definitely prior service military. I think if this man had pulled a handgun and killed those two sons of bitches, or if you believe the conspiracy theories, three sons of bitches, or whatever, I don't care who was shooting. If, I think if this man had pulled a gun and killed those people and had been fired for it, he could have lived with that. And in this case, he wasn't able to live with it because he's dead. Um, that just puts it in perspective for me and why I think these gun-free zones are absolute lunacy. Absolute, complete, total, rainbow-farting unicorn lunacy that only works in the minds of people who have no comprehension 
whatsoever to what reality is like. Let's take another one. This one for Nick Ferguson on apples from, uh, who is this from Tom, who is planting apples from seed, realizes that many of those apples may never produce anything really viable, but they might and wants considerations for grafting either onto the tree that's been planted from seed because it's a good rootstock or if I find something good, grafting so that I can find a better cultivar and, and reproduce it. So Nick, what say you on this that you are the master of plant propagation, at least of the people that I know. Hey, TSP listeners, this is Nick Ferguson calling in to answer Tom's question on growing apples. So, Tom, it sounds like what you're looking at doing is trying to find a new cultivar of apple growing from seed, which is the only way you do that. Now, most apple breeders will be um, hand-pollinating specific cultivars to get specific flavor profiles, and they'll try that. So they'll take uh, an early Macintosh, and they'll breed it to a Golden Delicious, and they'll see what that turns out. So they'll take each one of those seeds, plant it, they'll grow it up, and as soon as it is of a graftable size, they will cut that seedling and graft it, overgraft it, onto a mature apple tree. And they will force that to fruit much sooner than it would take if you were, let's say, grow, planting that seed in the ground and growing it directly in the ground to maturity, which, you know, could take 10, 15 years before you're getting apples. So a much quicker way is, like I said, you plant them in the ground, you grow them up, you take that cutting, graft it onto a more mature apple tree, and there's a couple techniques and methods that you can use to force it to fruit earlier so you can tell if that cultivar is going to be palatable or not. Now, um, it kind of sounds like what you're wanting to do is plant these seedling apples and grow them up to fruiting size. And if they don't taste good, using that as rootstock to graft onto. Now, if that's the case, then, you know, you'll just have to select branches, um, that will be appropriate to graft onto. Um, I mean, it's really hard to answer this question without knowing exactly what you're wanting to accomplish. So I'm trying to kind of shotgun approach this and answer as many possible versions of that as I can. So, I mean, man, if if you're wanting to try to breed a new cultivar of apple, then get yourself a couple good apple rootstocks that will grow well in your climate with your soils, get those planted and growing, and then start your seedling trials. So you get your seedling beds, you plant those all out, you get those growing, you tag each one, you take records on where you got your seed, what the seed was crossed with, and when when that seedling gets up to graftable size, which is probably going to be a year or two, 
uh, probably the next, you know, the, you know, after it is one, com- one full year old, that'll probably be big enough to graft with. If you're inexperienced, you might have to wait a second year. So you'll get that apple grown up to graftable size, and then you'll harvest that at the appropriate time. You might try chip budding. Depends on if it's big enough to chip bud with. And then you graft or bud that onto your more established rootstocks that you have grown in ground. And then that way you could actually do some research and you know possibly find a really good new cultivar. Now, if you do that, well then you might as well just go ahead and get a couple good cultivars, get all your apple trees lined out with, you know, grafted onto your good rootstock that you know is going to work for you. And in the meantime, you still get apples and you still get productivity while you're looking for that cool next big thing in apples. I hope that answer was helpful. And for everyone else, you can learn more about me at permacultureclassroom.com. I have an email list that you can sign up for. If you do that, then you'll be the first person to know when I have an event coming up or when I'm going to be traveling through your part of the country doing consultations. So head on over there. You can also interact with me on my Facebook group called Homegrown Liberty. I hope you all have a great weekend. Okay, cleanup batter for um, us this week and therefore for the year, Gary Collins, creator of the Primal Power Method. Uh, I got this email, and I'll put a link to this article in the show notes so you guys can read it. Just attaches a link to an article, one of many on the Internet right now, that talks about the results of a recent test removing sugar from children's diets. This seems to indicate that sugar is much more important to remove than overall carbohydrates. I'd like to hear Gary's comments about the role of sugar versus starches in the food cycle. Does he know how this, does he know of study results indicating starch pros and cons, uh, from Robert? So Gary, what say you on this study? Hey everyone, this is Gary Collins, creator of the Primal Power Method, and we have a question regarding a study. Study is one of my favorite things in the world. Oh, boy. Um, But it's a study that was recently done saying or indicating that the removal of sugar as opposed to total carbohydrates is more important for the health of children. And it's an interesting study far as uh, all of them are. And I'll be honest, most studies are pure crap. Um, They're highly influenced by whoever's funding them or whoever, if there's an agenda, it's just so hard to tell. This one was funded by NIH, National Institute of Health, who I used to work with uh, back in my uh, days at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. And I don't know, uh, Dr. Lustig was the head doctor in charge of this. He's very well respected, but I didn't like the study in the sense like most, it's very ambiguous. So it was a study of 43 children, uh, only black and Hispanic, which I thought was odd. But it was they stated it was because that demographic tends to ingest most of their sugar through sugary drinks, primarily sodas. Okay, that's uh, (laughs) I I don't know. It just it's an odd, odd study. Why not do a, a wider range study? 
uh, a bigger study and have a multitude of, of cultural backgrounds in there. I mean, once you start pinpointing, now you've kind of lost me. Um, and then, you know, basically what they're doing is they're saying we're going to they were trying to keep their carbohydrate ratio the same. But just change the added sugar to a starchy, primarily a starchy carbohydrate. Now, that's an interesting process. I, I, I get it, but it's not comparing apples to apples. It's no pun intended. Um, but that's because the examples they gave, I didn't get a whole diet example. I'm sure it was in the study further if I would have dug further into it, but I was just reading the article that the guy sent me to the link to. Um, but I'd like to see the detailed menu for every child every day, which I highly doubt they have. Uh, most studies are that way. You don't know what they're eating all the time. Um, so they're usually skewed. But now changing just a added sugar to a starchy carbohydrate or carbo or just a different carbohydrate is all they're doing. Added sugar is going to be in the form of refined sugar, which is going to be a simple sugar which means it doesn't take anywhere near the breakdown. It's ready to go into the bloodstream in the state it's in with very little digestion. When you're talking a starchy carbohydrate, it's a complex sugar. So it goes from a polysaccharide to a disaccharide to a monosaccharide. Monosaccharides are the way it has to be broken down. Sugars have to be broken down into to be absorbed into the bloodstream and utilized. That's how it works. So when they're comparing foods, I got lost again because the examples they gave were instead of yogurt with added sugar, the children had a bagel. Okay. That doesn't tell me anything. What was the bagel made out of? Was it a high fiber bagel? Did it have, what was the grain? What type of grain was it made from? You know, uh, what was the yogurt made from? I don't know, you know, where I have no clue what these food items are. And so if the bagel has much more fiber, that's going to dull the way that the sugar is broken down and absorbed into the bloodstream. It's going to spread it out over a longer period of time, which is totally going to change the dynamic of it. So if you get that sugar over a longer period of time, you're not going to have the ability to store it as fat as rapidly, obviously, as normal refined sugar. And that's, I mean, then they gave teriyaki chicken. They replaced it with turkey hot dogs and hamburgers. Well, what was the teriyaki chicken sauce made out of? I mean, what were they? There's so many things going on. And once you start looking at the micronutrients of these foods, they can cause and change and alter the way your body will react to the sugar too. I mean, there's so many things going on. So, for me, you know, what my opinion is, is it more important to eliminate the sugar than uh, far as just drastically or reduce the carbohydrates? I will say, well, both. I mean, you should be taking and reducing your children's sugar along with your own because adults are just as bad. We just don't ingest as much sugar as we shovel down our kids' throats. That's the only difference. Um, we're still eating very poorly. Um, now, I, I, you would want to reduce the sugar. And the overall carbohydrates. Uh, is a starchy carbohydrate evil in sense? No. If you want to eat a bagel, have a potato, some rice here and there, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. It's not going to kill you. It's when you, you ingest these foods, these highly processed foods, as a majority of your calories every day. That's where the problem arises. So I think with the results that they showed that these kids, when they replaced the 
the processed sugars or the added sugars with these starchy carbohydrates that their their uh, metabolic syndrome ratios and far as markers change to the better, you know, lower triglycerides, better cholesterol uh, ratios. And, you know, I don't know. To me, they were somewhat significant, but not enough. I would say long term. By eating that many carbohydrates and and processed foods, that over long term there wouldn't be much difference. I mean, they would end up with the same issues, health issues. It just may take a little longer for them to kick in than the kid who ingests mainlines the sugar all day and continues to throughout their life. Um, again, sugar, sugar. I mean, you're, if you're you're ingesting too many carbohydrates, you're ingesting too much sugar. That's a simple fact. So for me, I hope I uh, answered that question without it getting uh, too confusing and, and out in the weeds. But when you're talking about these studies, you always have to take them with a grain of salt and dig a little deeper into them and, uh, you know, kind of make your own own decisions on your own and kind of get through all of the kind of smoke and mirrors in these studies because a lot of them are meant to be sensationalized too to get your attention so the person who's writing them gets their 15 minutes of fame so or doing the study hope that helps and if you have any questions put it in the comments or hit me up at contact at primalpowermethod.com thanks i i think there's a lot going on in the world of nutrition like this that we, where people want to believe something, so they they set up a study to prove it. Um, and when you go into something like that, researchers inevitably, sometimes even I believe unconsciously, stack the deck that is going to make the results indicate what 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 they wanted it to indicate, or what the the source of the money wanted it to indicate. Um, when I look at this, first of all, it reminds me of this. Uh, video about from Stefan Molyneux I, I said I would put out yesterday about global warming uh, that kind of goes into this whole thing where we, we, we look at scientists almost as like they're choir boys, like they're they're immune to all of this influencing, like they're not normal people, and I think it's nonsensical. I'll, I'll let that video speak for itself. I did forget to put that in the show notes yesterday. I'll put it in the show notes today. It's about a 25-minute video, and it says, you know, what if we treated stockbrokers like scientists? And it really hits the heart of this matter on, on not just global warming, but so many things where we, we look at science as this entity onto itself that's pristine and beautiful and, and, and never is influenced by outside forces to, to come up with the wrong answer. And, and that's what scientific methodology is supposed to do for us. But it, it would also indicate that scientists are somehow immune to all of the forces that other human beings are, are, are not immune to. And, and I just don't believe that because I don't believe in fairy tales and rainbow farting unicorns. On this whole concept of carbohydrates versus refined sugars, I think there can be some truth to it, but it depends is a big part of it. If I take something like a potato and I roast it, and that's all that I do to it, and maybe add a little bit of salt and pepper and use a little bit of fat in that roasting, it's a self-limiting food. And it's not just that you're eating carbohydrates, but how much carbohydrate are you consuming? Okay, so if I take that and I put that in front of a kid and say, there's your roasted potatoes with a little bit of rosemary, black pepper, and salt, they'll eat a little bit of it. And they'll probably eat less than we would feel they should, but again, they're a smaller person. They should eat smaller portions. 
unless they're boys in that super growth phase, where they can get away with a lot of crap you can't get away with before and after that massive growth phase that the kids go through. Um, the problem with getting away with it is it sets a pattern, and then they continue to eat that way into adulthood. That, that's that's the big problem there, because it is very forgiving during that rapid growth phase what, what kids are eating, if they're active. Um, but if I take the same potato, chop it up into strips, and I deep fry it in fat so that it sucks up massive amounts of fat, and during that frying process, I actually start to convert quite a bit of the starch into more of a refined sugar. And if you've ever experienced potatoes that have been roasted even, or fried or what have you, and you taste them, they start to taste sweeter. And they start to taste sweeter because during that heat conversion process, a lot of that you know, base starch actually starts to convert to sugar. Then it hits the palate, and the, and, and the saliva in the mouth immediately begins converting the, the carbohydrates to sugar. And that's a whole other subject. But when you eat a refined carbohydrate, or I'm sorry, a non-refined carbohydrate, your body immediately begins to refine it. You are your own carbohydrate refinement manufacturer. But if we then say, how many French fries, deep-fried fat French fries, will a child eat compared to a roasted potato – immediately the child eats more. When you're eating white potatoes, you might as well be eating freaking sugar. Pound for pound, you end up with the same amount of sugar in the body, and it takes the body very little time to take a, a, a carbohydrate like a white potato and convert it into a full-on sugar. And then when you couple that with fat, and you marry the two together at a high level, like with deep frying, It becomes addictive, and the, and the child will eat more, not just because it tastes good, but because there's a, a response to the body, consume this, consume this, consume this. If now we go into the fast food world of fries, and we have you know our, our, our seasoning, and in our seasoning there's actually sugar, right? Then we trigger even a greater response, even though there might be a very small amount of refined sugar used for that. Or if we, you know, I, I don't know, soak the potatoes in sugar water so they take up a little bit of refined sugar, it causes this triggered reaction. So much of our refined foods they're doing this with today. So when we look at carbohydrate, we also have to look at those types of things. How much total food is being consumed and how much of that is due to this, this, this response This innate human response to consume certain foods. When we take things like a carbohydrate, which has a sugar component to it, even if it hasn't gotten all the way there yet, and again, our mouth immediately begins that process and marry it to a fat. Where if we stick to a diet that's more based on proteins and fats and leafy green vegetables and vegetables and, and other things like that that are low in sugar, But they're actually, people are there's not enough fiber. Well, if you're eating paleo, if you're eating primal, you're getting more fiber than you're ever going to get from a freaking loaf of bread. Okay? Plain and simple, look at how much fiber is in two slices of bread. And look at how much fiber is in a salad made from kale and spinach and lettuce, etc., which is very low in actual carbohydrate. When you eat like that, even if you're eating a, a highly calorically dense thing like a well-marbled steak... That's a very self-limiting thing. You're only going to eat so much of it. And a lot of the carbohydrate in, in excess intake that we do is because we're marrying it to other components like fats that cause that to happen. So we, we have to take that totality in, into an understanding. And that's 
One of the things I've said about paleo and primal living is that when you first go into it, you end up eating so much food because you basically just say, I'm not going to eat these things, I'm going to eat these things. And you're like, I can have steak, I have bacon, I can have eggs, right? And But very, very quickly, the amount of food you consume in totality just starts to decline because your body is so well nourished, it's getting so much of what it needs Because if you're eating those types of foods, you're getting everything you really need. As long as you're adding vegetables and small amounts of some fruits and tubers and things with that, but lots of green leafy vegetables. That's like the most important component that gets left out. And what I would call like low sugar fruits, like tomatoes and cucumbers and things mixed in, squashes and things like that. If you're eating like that with meat, and, you're, and then you're bringing in fats and nuts and things like that, and you keep this varied diet... Um, your, 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 your diet will moderate and you'll find yourself eating two meals a day instead of three often with, with a few small snacks and stuff like that. It's just my experience with that. So I think that totality needs to be taken in with this as well. And I'm sure Gary would agree. Now it's time for the song of the day. Today's song is not a brilliant piece of music. It's, it's really not. I, I don't know when it was originally written. But uh, Google on the uh, the video for it says it was released in 1987, and I, I guess that sounds about right. It is it is by a band called Diopers Diopers, uh, and it's called the Second Week of Deer Camp. And I should have played this probably last week, maybe even the week before, when a lot of you guys were actually in your your second week or the end of deer season. The reason it's the second week of deer camp is is not just that it's two weeks into deer hunting, but in many parts of the country, deer season traditionally, especially buck season, has been a two-week event. Like in Pennsylvania, it starts uh, the, the Monday after Thanksgiving, and it runs for two weeks. It may be different now, but when I was a kid, and certainly in 1987, it was a two-week event. It's a polka song. The polka, right? Okay, and I'm playing this today one because it's it's just freaking funny, and it's just goofballish. And every once in a while, we need to be not so serious and just have a laugh and enjoy ourselves. I'm playing it because many of you guys are deer hunters, and you have you'll have an affinity for this song. When I was a teenager, um, and, and this song would come on the radio, uh, and, and usually. When we were listening to it, it was the deer season time of year. And it was really, really popular leading up to deer season. And it was really, really popular in the downhill side that second week. And I, I hung out with all these guys who were teenagers like me. And uh, we were usually able to round up some beer from somebody uh, to go out in the woods and drink in the cold in, 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 in beginning of December. And it was usually pretty cold around those in the 80s, mid-80s. We weren't worried about global warming at all. Trust me, it was cold. Uh, it was really cold, but that meant you could just get the beer, take it out, shove it in the snow, and nobody was probably going to come looking for you, and you had good night vision, so you could see if anybody did. So if John Law came, you took off. Now, if you think about that as kids back then in the 80s and going out in the woods having beer parties and telling lies and, and just being kids, um, since you were worried that maybe the one cop in the whole township would show up looking for you, 
um, you did need to be mobile. So we didn't carry ghetto blasters, and there was no such thing as iPhones and iTunes and, you know, docks and stuff like that. So we had like a little transistor radio like you might keep in your blackout kit, things like that we would carry with us. And we'd, we'd get one of the four stations that you could get to come in in rural Pennsylvania. And sooner or later, during that time of year, this song would come on, and we would be, you know, drunk on two beers And uh, singing this together. And I think there was a couple reasons we really liked this. One, it was different and new. It wasn't an old song back then. Uh, and, and two, it only came on during that time of year, like right before Christmas. It wasn't something you heard on the radio uh, a month later or a month before. And then it came back every year. It became a tradition for us young guys, especially. The girls all thought we were crazy when we were singing this song. But since it only lasted a few minutes, it, it, it kind of wore off quickly, and we were back to being guys that might be cute enough to flirt with. Um, so I think there was just that kind of, It came around and, and went away type thing, and it was part of the whole experience. But I think the other thing was, like, all of my friends anyway were from families that knew how to freaking hunt. I mean, by the second week of deer season, we hadn't just filled our tags. We'd probably filled a tag for, like, mom and a brother or a cousin or somebody else in the family that didn't hunt. Because we needed to put meat away this time of year. We really did. Uh, it was important to us, and because it was important to us, we were good at our craft, Our families were good at our craft. And while at this time of year, the deer herd was nowhere as big as it is in Pennsylvania, there were plenty of people like in this song that weren't going to get their deer, so you felt you could maybe you know get your mom or your aunt or your grandmother uh, get a, go get a license and add a tag right to, to what you could do. So many of us had put up, and while well, technically this is illegal, I'm sure the statute of limitations is up from 1987, I might have put four deer in the larder already, and Dad might have put three or four deer in the larder. And some of these guys that had brothers, their brother might have put three or four. And so you maybe put up a dozen deer for the family by this point. But we knew yokels like this. We knew people that couldn't hunt. We knew people that had been hunting for 20 years and never shot a deer. And they were a bunch of screw-ups. The deer hunting was like this. So it was kind of like, uh, like early reality TV, like feeling better about yourself because these people were so incompetent. But unlike reality TV, the people listening to the song really weren't, and the people like this really, really existed. And uh, we all knew people like this. We all knew goofuses like this. And it was just fun. And I wanted to end, because this will be the last Friday show of the year. Um, next week, we will do Monday and Tuesday, sort of regular shows. Wednesday, uh, we'll do the Christmas special. And Christmas Eve through the rest of the year, I'm gone. I'm going to disappear. Uh, other than, like I said, there might be an opportunity for some of you guys that are local to come hang out with me during some of this downtime. Because there's a lot of stuff i got to get done, and I thought some of this would be fun. But otherwise, this is it. The final Friday of 2015. Let's have some fun with it. And here you go with Diopers. And the second, oh, I almost forgot, and I think this is important to pay a little tribute to my grandfather here. Uh, my grandfather was one of these guys. I don't know how my father and his brother, Mark, became such great hunters. My, my grandfather was one of these guys. And he was also a polka guy. And I remember being a really little kid. Now I'm going back to the 70s. 
And he had his little plug-in radio, you know, it was about, uh, you know, as big as like, uh, almost like half the size of the eventual Ghetto Blasters, but this is before Ghetto Blasters existed, and you plug in a little wooden thing with a dial, AM radio, and on weekends when I would be up there, he would be listening to polka music, he was one of these people that actually listened to polka music, and there was a pretty big Polish, Ukrainian, Romanian, Lithuanian, Georginian, uh, Slovakian community that we were all part of. And these are people, especially the older crowd, that actually listened to and liked polka music. And, and, and I know that I must have felt about his music the same way I did. What the heck's that racket? Because I know whenever I had on, like, you know, rock music or something like that, or even something pretty tame like John Cougar in the 80s, right? What is that racket? You know, And that's how I felt about his polka music. And I think that was another reason us kids kind of liked it, because it let us finally like something that, that the old-timers liked. And, uh, and actually enjoy it and just have a good time. So please, as we go into the holidays, have a good time. Enjoy your life. Being prepared is so you can live your life to the fullest, not so you can live your life worried about what's coming next. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. And if you're having it right now, enjoy your second week of Deer Camp. We're getting close. Give me that, give me that, come on, I never get the shirt. Come on, come on, Manny. Hey, there goes one. Hey, you shot my cow. It's the second week of deer camp. I got a swollen head. I'm lying with the dust balls underneath my bed. And icy breezes blowing in through the tongue and groove. My pants are frozen to the floor and I'm too sick to move. I didn't drink too many, only 30 cans of beer. It must have been that last shot that put me under here. It's the second week of deer camp and all the guys are here. We drink, play cards and shoot the bull but never shoot no deer. The only time we leave the camp is when we go for beer. The second week of deer camp is the greatest time of year. I remember playing poker, that weasel must have won. He's wearing mine with swampers and sleeping with my gun. He's snoring like a chainsaw, the camp smells like a dump. Someone's dirty underwear is hanging on the pump. Buckles in the wood box, cleaners passed out on the stove. His flannel shirt is smoking, I wonder if he knows. It's the second week of deer camp, and all the guys are here. We drink, play cards, and shoot the bull, but never shoot no deer. The only time we leave the camp is when we go for beer. The second week of deer camp is the greatest time of year. Beetle's crawling through the door, I think he got frostbite. He passed out in the outhouse, and he'd been there since last night. Goofa stumbles through the door, he says he got a buck. He was coming from the wayside, and he killed it with his truck. And Musty cracks a beer and says, it's time to celebrate. Goofus got the first buck since 1968. It's the second week of deer camp, and all the guys are here. 
We drink with hearts and shoot the wolf, but never shoot no deer. The only time we leave the camp is when we go for beer. The second week of deer camp is the greatest time of year. It's the second week of deer camp, and all the guys are here. We drink with hearts and shoot the bull, but never shoot no deer.